Good morning. It's my blessed privilege today to preach again from 1 Corinthians. Now we're going to chapter 10. I'm only covering a few verses here, and the analogy with the Exodus generation will go on longer than this, but there's a lot of concepts, and a lot of times this same issue is brought up in the New Testament, and frankly, in the prophets in the Old Testament. So I want to give you a good overview of how significant this is and how God has used it to remind his people and warn them, both to remind us of his goodness and his promises and to warn us not to neglect so great a salvation. So let me just read the text. I'll read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. Again, from the Lexham English Bible, and then we'll begin after I pray. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all went through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And then we'll see in verse 5 that they were rebellious and many fell. So we'll get to that on the 31st. So I see we have the first slide there. Let me pray, and uh, we'll unpack this. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you that we can gather together to encourage one another, to remind each other of your mighty promises, and to remind each other that we need you, we need one another, and we need to faithfully serve and not follow in the examples that we read about in the Bible where people did fall. Thank you for keeping us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice this begins, For I do not want you to be ignorant. Now, when Paul introduces that idea, he's going to hear talk about our fathers here, which is the patriarchs. And we'll talk about how that could apply under the new covenant. But when he says, I do not want you to be ignorant, that is reminding us of the context. If you were here last week, I talked about the analogy from the Isthmian games in Corinth that Paul used to bring uh, exhortation to keep focused on the goal and talk about the runners and the boxers. And so that sermon should be online if you didn't hear it. But there was a warning that we need to exercise self-control. So what we have here is he transitions from the end of chapter 9 with the analogy from the games at Corinth to an analogy from Israel's history. But we're still thinking about the need to exercise self-control. Last week we saw they exercise self-control to run in a game, to run a race that was just based on receiving a perishable prize. But we're looking for an imperishable one, this God's promises in Christ. But now we transition to another analogy to the Exodus generation from Israel's history. So I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers. Our fathers 
all were all under the cloud and all went through the sea. Now in this section, one through four, all is emphatic because of repetition. It's found five times in these verses. So when you go to interpret a section, to teach, to study, however, look at repeated, repeated terms. When I look down at the, I always start from the Greek and I looked at it, all, 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 pas, all. So it's talking about corporate solidarity. And the warning for self-control is still on the table. And so the Israelites that were slaves in Egypt were under the cloud as God led them out. And they went through the sea as God divided it. Now, in our applications, I'm going to preach uh, from Exodus 6, excuse me, Exodus 14. I, I want us to really be familiar with the text. So I'll bring that back out. Many have become Christian really since uh, in recent days. I preached through Exodus one time, but it was some decades ago. So I want to make sure we keep these things in our mind. So we'll go into Exodus 14, the cloud and the sea. They all believed as well. We'll see that in Exodus 14, 31. And the warning is this. Okay, we've had a shared experience. There's a church in Corinth. People have come to Christ. People have had this experience. But we know there's problems. I talked about that last week. They were claiming liberties that God doesn't give, such as the immoral practices in the temples, the pagan temples, eating uh, and dining with the demons, which we haven't got to that yet. That shows up later in this chapter in the pagan temples. And Paul's very concerned about the Corinthians. And then on top of that, they're turning against him, though he was there for a year and a half and preached at the founding of the church. And they were starting to make false judgments about who's the greatest. Who's the greatest, who's more spiritual, or who's more gifted, who's more important within the church? Once that topic gets on the table, you have a poison pill sitting there looking at you. A poison pill for the well-being of the church. Because we're all attached to the head, and he cares for all, and we need to be concerned about the alls in regard to the body of Christ. And that's found right here. The warning is that most did not persevere to receive the prize. And I'll talk about that some in the next sermon. Now, Paul, in his own discussion, in his own testimony, said that he disciplines his body, keeps it under control, so that after preaching to others, he wouldn't be disqualified. Disqualified, another analogy to the games. If you don't play the game, run the race according to the rules, you'll be disqualified. And so, again, it's, it's furthering the analogy. In our case, it would be to commit apostasy, which God will keep us from. But he's going to use this to help do it. So our fathers here, notice that phrase, our fathers, uh, I have a statement about that. Our fathers shows Paul's view of Solidarity of people of faith. Notice that the Corinthian Christians are called brothers as well. The fathers who were slaves in Egypt 
It came out by Yahweh's mighty hand um, only to fail to exercise self-control and to win the prize. And so there's a warning here. Paul gives his own uh, testimony about exercising self-control, but when he looks at the Corinthian church and what they've written to him, they're not doing it. They're demanding what they can get by with, making false judgments, wanting to eat the in the pagan temples with the pagans and dine on the pagan food and even go so far as to go to the temples that offered temple prostitution. And so it was a horrible situation. But Paul hadn't given up on them. Notice he calls them brothers. Until we know differently, until the Judas leaves, if that was the case, to go back to the disciples, we are to love and exhort one another as brothers and look to our common salvation for guidance. Our fathers would be the patriarchs. And there's a lot of technical discussion about this. I'll, I'll wait on some of that. We'll get to that word example or tupas next time I preach. Now, here's a statement I put in my notes. The Old Testament uses... The story of God's mighty deliverance from Egypt to make a people and their own apostasy to bring warnings and exhortation to future generations. Now, if you want to turn to this, I'll show you. This is not just in the New Testament. It's also in the prophets. Turn to Nehemiah 9, starting with verse 9. And what you'll find in the Old Testament, Nehemiah 9, 9, See, I'm, I'm making life difficult. You've got to find a little book. But it's in there. And Nehemiah 9 9. And what we see in the Psalms and elsewhere is a recitation by God's prophets under the Old Covenant to remind Israel of her corporate identity and even remind Israel of her own failures. One of the proofs in my mind, of the inspiration of scriptures is the humility with which they refer to themselves. Most nations create hagiographies, making themselves the mighty, holy, greatest ones that ever were. But Israel's, Moses' song, for example, in Deuteronomy 32, they're reminding themselves of their own sin. Why? Because they really were a people. I hope you heard Eric's Sunday school this morning. It was awesome. He laid that all out there. Nehemiah 9 9. This is from, at the time of coming out of the exile, later in Israel's history. And you saw the affliction of, notice the phrase, our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, and all the people of his land. For you, God's being addressed, knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you, that is God, made a name for yourself as to this day. Nehemiah 9.11. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. I'm going to skip down to verse 17. 
But they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Nevertheless, verse 26, I'm jumping down, they were disobedient and rebelled. God is merciful. So when Paul is saying, I do not want you to be ignorant, he talks about our fathers. He is standing in line with other prophets, Paul the apostle, even in Israel's history, who reminded them of God's promises, his mighty deeds, and his nature as merciful and kind and loving, forgiving and gracious. And so this is a common theme in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. Paul is picking up here, having given an example from the games in Corinth. Now he's given one from Israel's history in order to appeal to the Corinthians to not fall and fail and fail to exercise self-control. Let's go to verse 2. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Uh, I'm telling you, 90% of what I've read and studied about this, I'm not going to particularly refer to today because a lot of it is technical discussion about the Old Testament's use, the New Testament's use of the old and whether some of these things are allegory or not or whether the allegorical method is appropriate, which I don't believe it is. We need to take the point at hand. The point at hand is exercise self-control in order to keep your eye on the goal and win the prize. The point is also, here are people who had many privileges, as have the Corinthian Christians, for having heard the gospel and come to Christ. And so, not to allow things to distract us from the goal. So, this, there's an analogy with being baptized into Christ. Notice, this is literal. I really like L.E.B. in this one. Baptized into Moses and then here, baptized into Christ. That same terminology is used in Galatians 3.27 and Romans 6.3. And let's see what that means. But I, I put a clue up here on the slide. It means, uh, excuse me, God creates a covenant community with shared gifts. A covenant community in Christ, as in the Old Testament, into Moses, with shared gifts. So let me just tell you what this doesn't mean, which a lot of times gets preached on by people who love to allegorize. It's anachronistic to say this means they were trusting the sacraments because uh, things were much simpler in the new covenant. We'll see in 1 Corinthians 11, they had a supper together. They were baptized, yes, 
By immersion, yes. That's what it means. And they shared the Lord's Supper together. And they weren't treating each other right. That's true. But the idea of a high church liturgy with sacraments is read into this because it didn't exist until 300 years later. That's what I mean by anachronistic. So lay that aside. Really, things are much better now because a lot of the commentators are concerned with what the author meant, not what you can read into something later in church history. So what does he mean? He's talking about becoming a people. Becoming a people by the mighty works of God. Becoming a people because of God's mercy, God's redemption, God bringing us out of slavery, and God bringing us to himself. And all that goes along with that is important, including baptism and the Lord's Supper. But this is not high church sacerdotalism. Let me, let me make a point here. Um, all is thematic. In five parallel, am I echoing? I thought I was. Let me see if I can. Let me uh, see if I can quit shouting. All is thematic here, and uh, their shared experiences do not keep them from falling in the wilderness. As with the wilderness generation, the Corinthians did not take the danger of idolatry seriously. The Corinthians said, now I'm quoting them, Paul quotes them in their slogan, we know there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there's no God but one. 1 Corinthians 8, 4b. Why did they say that? To prove there's no problem with going to the idol temple and having idol worship services and having uh, a, a pagan meal with the idolaters because idol is anything anyhow. So their knowledge was being misused and therefore Paul sees reason, reason to warn them. There's danger and we need to be mindful of it. We need to be mindful of it. And by analogy, looking at the Old Testament, the Israelites were very well knew that Yahweh had brought them out of Egypt Nevertheless, nevertheless, many of them fell into idolatry and immorality. Paul sees the danger of the Corinthians doing the same. And as we look back at that, we read about the Exodus, and we'll do some reading here today. We think, how could they do that? How could you have come out? Who was it crying out to God? It was Israelites. Who was it that brought them out? It was God. Who had done the mighty works and the miracles? It was God. It was Yahweh. And how could they ever think a golden calf did it? But in analogy, in application, I should say, in application, how could the Corinthians think the way they did? Nothing wrong with the um, pornea immorality. Nothing wrong with the dining with the pagan deities. We'll find out later that they're dining with the demons. That'll be in this chapter. So this is all applicable. There's hardly anything that happened that doesn't happen again somewhere. And so we need to always be on the alert and always be clear in understanding what the truth is. Now, uh, some people have used this to prove infant baptism. That's hardly the point and hardly what Paul's talking about. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that one. 
Now let's go to verse 3. 1 Corinthians 10, 3. Manna. And all ate the same spiritual food. All ate the same spiritual food. What was that? Well, I put it in the slide title there. Manna. They ate manna. I'm going to allude to some of that here while we're still on this slide in the New Testament. I showed you that in Nehemiah, he goes back to this. In Nehemiah, the prophet goes back to this. See, look at what had happened. God did the right thing. We did the wrong thing. So they used this. And you, it's amazing in the Gospel of John, the same sort of thing comes up again. But they ate the spiritual food. Now, what does it mean by spiritual food? It does not imply that the manna was immaterial or somehow ethereal. The manna was tangible. And spiritual does not mean immaterial, but God's supernatural provision. Spiritual meaning provided miraculously by God for their provision as they cried out to him. Again, there's a lot of material in the Old Testament about this. They got sick of it and started complaining about the manna. So they got meat until they were sick of eating meat. What can we learn from that? We can learn for sure not to be ungrateful people. Each of us, all, everyone needs to think of this. God has not given me what I deserve. He's shown mercy, kindness, love, and grace, and he provides for me every day. And when I do fail him, he's merciful, and he helps me, and he changes me by his grace, and you, and anyone else who calls out to him. God does not change. There's always a lesson to learn. The reference is not to to one of the elements of the Lord's Supper, but manna. We always like to get things down to something we can control. Some priest waving his hands over and turning this into that and this into that and recreating the very pagan temples they had in Corinth, calling it something else. This, to me, it's an abomination what goes on in Christianized religion that has nothing Nothing to do with what God did. This is, they had a, just a regular meal. And they sat down. The sin in chapter 11 was the prominent, wealthy, important people ate in a big, fancy atrium. And the other people sat out there and had very little of nothing. But it was already a meal. They didn't have some priest changing the element into something it wasn't. So let's just get all that junk out of our heads and read the Bible. What does the Bible say? Well, God provides. And it's not about bread and wine. It's about breaking bread together as a people in fellowship with God and one another who love one another, who love the Lord, and who take care of one another and don't parade our own would-be piety in front of others, but humbly serve together, caring for everyone the Lord has brought by his grace. Now, John 6, if you want to, I'm going to do a quick little walk. There's no way I can quick preach through John 6. It's like 60 some verses. But there are, there are references to this bread 
elsewhere other than you might think of. John 6 is one of them. What happened in John 6? Jesus multiplies the bread in John 6, miraculously. And they needed bread. And so what happened when he multiplied bread? They wanted to take him by force and make him king. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to capture Jesus and force him to be the king. Why? Because he can give us free bread. We won't have to plant wheat anymore. And there's a debate about that. And Jesus walks on water. Some more things happen. And so then if we get to John 6, let me just um, start with verse 20. Well, let's start with verse 45. I'll just have a few verses here. This is what it says. And it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That's what Jesus said. And anyone who has seen the Father, no one has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Talk about himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And what did Jesus say? We heard this earlier. I am the bread of life. What did he say? I am the bread of life. This is another reference to the Father. John 6, 49. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Wow. John 6, 51. John 6, 51. I am the living bread, Jesus said, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This starts another debate. They didn't like it. This isn't sacerdotalism. This isn't some high church mysticism, incense and bells and all this junk. No, this is cold, sober truth. Jesus Christ claimed be the one who provides true bread. His life for the, he, he give his life for the life of the world. He died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Jesus Christ, God the Son. They wanted a king who could give them free bread. Jesus offered redemption. Not only redemption and forgiveness, but eternal relationship with him and provision. And so they're rejecting this. And by the end, by the way, John 6, you get to the end, they all left except for the 12. Are you going to leave too? No, you're the one that has eternal life. Where are we going to go? This is all set up. I love John. I love the gospel of John. I preached through it about 30 years ago. I wouldn't, if I live long enough, maybe I'll do it again. But anyhow, think about this. In John chapter 4, there's the Samaritan woman at the well. And Jesus said, if you ask, I'll give you water. The water, I don't have anybody to help me. Do you need water? And he has a dialogue with her, tells her things that would offend anybody. Go tell your husband, well, I, I, I'm, no, I don't have a husband. Yeah, the one you're living with is not your husband, and then it turns out she'd had five or whatever. And then what did she do? She got offended. No, 
She went and got her friends and said, you got to see this guy. He told me everything I ever did. Now, would you get excited if Jesus said that about you? But she believed. She believed the water. And Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again to the Samaritan. Verse 14, but whoever drinks of this water, which I give to him, will never be thirsty for eternity. But the water which I give to him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Do you have that water? Have you turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone can supply every need? And whatever happens in this world, what he supplies is eternal. Always we're supplied for. Always we have a relationship. Always we have everything that he's promised because God is merciful and kind. Then in John 5, there's a guy sitting at a well, hoping the water be stirred, and he, Jesus healed him, and he didn't even care. He never found out who it was. Turned him in for working on Sabbath, and ends up being rebuked by Jesus. His need was supplied too, but he could care less. He wasn't even grateful. And then you go to John 6, and you have a whole dialogue about bread. So the Bible's full of bread. The bread of life that we need is Jesus, who died for sins once for all today. Believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. God the Son, the eternal creator, come into our world, as we sang about today, died for sins, his substitutionary death, shed blood, was raised from the dead, Send it to heaven, and he's coming again. Let's go to verse 4. Let's go to verse 4. 1 Corinthians 10, 4. Water from the rock. And all, there's another one of these alls, all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drink from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So this, you can probably understand, has a lot of material written about it. How in the world does the rock fall in Rome? And where did you read in Exodus? There was even a, a mythology that had developed about a rolling rock that just went around where they did. But we didn't read about that in Exodus. So what is this spiritual drink from the rock that is Christ? Um, so this, again, like the manna, the spiritual drink was the supernatural provision of water from the rock. You read about that in Exodus. Supernatural provision. Normally, you don't strike a rock and out comes the water. It's a miracle, just like the Exodus was a miracle. The Red Sea splitting and so on. That was a miracle. But here is the rock. Now, if you want to read a fantastic a chapter of the Bible on this, that would be Deuteronomy chapter 32. And again, we don't have room and time to cover all of that, but let me give you some excerpts from Deuteronomy 32, the Song of Moses. And in this song, Moses ascribes greatness and goodness to God who provides. And then a reminder, we forgot, we did the wrong thing, we rebelled, and so that's pretty typical in this sort of literature. 
Deuteronomy 32. Let me just cite a few verses. Uh, verse 4, 32, 4. Notice this. The rock. My version has it capitalized because it's about the Lord, about Yahweh. The rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteousness and upright is he. That's what Moses says about Yahweh. The rock. His ways are perfect. He's just. He's holy. And we ascribe to him his, the attributes that he's revealed about himself. Verse 13. I'll just skip through some of these so we get the idea of Deuteronomy 32. He made him ride on the high places of the earth, and he ate the produce of the field, and he made him suck honey from the rock, and oil from the flinty rock. It's part of the song. This is about Israel. Verse 15, but Jerushron, this is a, a way of talking about Israel, grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. This is the literature I'm talking about. The rock, the savior, the provider, the one who saved us and mercifully provided for us. And then sleek and, by the way, in the Old Testament, fat is good. Okay? Yeah, well, because they didn't have uh, TV commercials about skinny back then. That meant you're well provided for. And uh, well, we forgot about that, and we went somewhere else and scorned the rock. Verse 18, you neglected, 32, 18, Deuteronomy 32, 18, you neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. Israel was born of God. Christians are born of God. That's the analogy Paul's making, 1 Corinthians 10. How did you get here? How did you become a people in Corinth of God, in Christ, serving him, blessed? How did that happen? It did not happen at the pagan temple. It did not happen in the temple of Aphrodite or whatever is out there that the pagans have. It happened through the gospel, through grace, and through God's mercy. And then notice something again from their history. Verse 30 of uh, Deuteronomy 32. How could one chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? Notice there's a reversal of a different promise. When Israel was right with God, it worked the other way. One would chase a thousand. But when they rebelled and went into apostasy, it happened the other way around. And that's the lament here. In Deuteronomy 32, the Lord had given them up. 31 and 37, let me read those two. Indeed, their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves judge this. Verse 37, and he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge. Where are they? The pagan gods have no power. They're either stone and metal with no uh, ontological reality as far as deity or their demons. We'll see that later in 1 Corinthians 10. 
They're either just ideas or they're demons, but they're not the God of the Bible. They're not the God who redeems. They're not the God who provides. They're not the God who protects and not the God who carries us along by his grace and his mercy. And that is what Moses is saying to the Corinthians. I do not want you ignorant. We can learn from the wilderness fathers. Now let's have some applications. I said I want to actually read some of these verses to make sure we're all very aware of these historical events that made Israel a people. Number one, we must know the events of Exodus, which provide important examples for believers. Two, God still redeems slaves and makes them into a people for his own possession. Did you know everyone outside of Christ is a slave to sin? But God redeems us when we put our faith in him. Let's go back to Exodus 14, and I'll just read some of these passages with minimal con comments other than putting it in perspective, uh, going all the way back to Genesis. Exodus 14, 10b through 11. The sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, as Yahweh. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Rhetorical question with scorn and ridicule toward Moses. Why have you dealt with us in this way? Why have you dealt with us this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't it amazing how quickly forget how God made us Christians. How they quickly they forgot. Did they forget that while there they were crying out under the bondage that they were in, under the abusive way they were being treated by Pharaoh and so on? And that was in answer to prayer, God eventually through, through raised up Moses, brought him you know the story of Moses, I hope, and the Passover and so on. We can't forget, dear ones, we can't forget. We can't forget how God forgave our sins. We can't forget why it is we're Christian, why it is that he cares for us, and how he showed mercy to people who didn't and don't deserve it. But God has shown kindness. And the thing that, Paul is concerned about in Corinth is that their, their ingratitude is a serious danger, and he sees it. Lack of gratitude, the Corinthians. God had brought Paul to Corinth to preach the gospel to them, and they were looking for something else. Now, this goes back to the promise of God. Eric did a fabulous job this morning laying out why there's an Israel and what God's promises are and why people hate Israel because of having been the beneficiaries of promises. Genesis 15, 5 and 6. And he brought him out, that is Abram, and, they, and said, God brought him out and said, look toward the heaven and the number of stars, if you were able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. 
Genesis 15, 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. Key verse in the whole Bible. Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, pay attention, it's marked on your notes there. Genesis 15, 13 and 14. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years, 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. That's why it happened. So when they're scorning Moses, they're scorning the promise God made to Abram. Actually identifying how long they'll be there and promising to bring them out all the way back before they were born. Isn't that amazing? But yet, still to this day, people hate Israel. Even when, for the most, mostly they're not right with God. The promise still stands. So there, Genesis 15 is a promise that God will bring them out. And he kept his promise. Dear ones, when God keeps his promises, don't complain about God. Don't complain when God keeps his promises. Now let's go to Exodus 14, 12. So they looked back. They were following. They were being led out. They went through the sea. How many of you know that doesn't normally happen? The sea opens up. It doesn't for me. I got to put the boat in. It's the only way I get anywhere. And then, you know, some skeptics say, well, it was a sea of reeds. It was only two or three feet deep. There were no miracle. But then, of course, the entire Egyptian army drowned in that sea. So that doesn't explain anything. Exodus 14, 12. This is not the word that we, is, excuse me. This is not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, Okay, there's an extra the in there. Excuse me. See, the at the beginning carried over from the last verse. Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we will serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. How quickly we forget. I pray, may I never forget. May I never, ever forget how good God has been, how merciful he's been, how kind he's been. I'm supposed to be dead. I'm supposed to be dead. How many times has my poor wife had to hear the doctor say, your husband's not going to make it? And the prayers of the saints kept going up. And uh, it wouldn't be bad to go to be with the Lord, but God kept me here. And it would be horrible to forget that and to think, oh, I'm tired of all this. No, we can't do that. We need to serve him. And uh, no, it's never better to serve the Egyptians. It's never better to die in rebellion against God. It's always better to believe in him. God passed over them and he kept his promises. Exodus 6, 8. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abram, Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Let's go to verse four, chapter 14, 19 and 22. We're recounting what God did. And the, this material shows up throughout the Old Testament in their literature. 
As I said, it shows up in Corinthians, shows up in John, shows up in Hebrews. It shows up many different places where the Lord's reminding us what he did. Our fathers, we are grafted in, we're part of this. And so we can learn as they learn. Exodus 14, 15, excuse me, 1922. And the angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. And if you're old enough, you're like me, you see Charlton Heston standing there. So uh, we saw it. It was on the movie. Verses 30, 31, Exodus 14. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord, that's Yahweh, had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. What are the... Moses mean the one who spoke for God, who God raised up to bring them out. And that's what we need to remember. That's what we need to remember. The mighty deeds of God done in the Bible are called those that our fathers witnessed in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. And that applies to any believers. The biblical history applies to us all. The whole Bible is telling us about God's attributes, that he saves, that he cares, that he forgives, that he redeems. And when we recount the mighty deeds of God and teach from the Bible, we are being encouraged to believe. We're being encouraged to stand firm. We're being encouraged to encourage one another until the day comes to make sure none fall after the example of unbelief. God saved and they believed. How could you forget? But yet God instituted many things to remind. We forget because the world around us is enticing us endlessly with its siren song of lust and apostasy and anger and bitterness and rejection of all things that are good. And may God help us to not listen to that. Titus, we have a couple um, passages now, the New Testament. Titus 2, 11 and 12. Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Now, self-control is what Paul was talking about at the end of 1 Corinthians 9 and is still commenting about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul, remember, said, 
The athletes at the games exercise self-control. How much more should we to receive an imperishable prize? Now, when it says here, the grace of God has appeared, uh, appeared is, excuse me, epiphino, epiphino, where we get our word epiphany, only it's a verb, has appeared, the epiphany, the coming, this is the first advent, the epiphany of the Lord, who comes and reveals himself in history to bring salvation to a people. And then training us, how, do you, how many of you know the word of God and the gospel has content that trains us? It trains us. What does it train us for? Renouncing ungodliness, worldly passions, self, be self-controlled, upright, and live godly lives in the present age. That's what we've already learned from Christ and his apostles. We've already learned from Moses and the prophets in the Old Testament and it continues to be a message for all believers to believe this. Training, paiduo is a word for as if you were training young people in a, a careful way so that they learn everything they should. That's the idea here. So some in Corinth were not doing that. Now one more slide. Now this also, we talked about last time I preached, which was last week, a redeemed people waiting for the blessed hope. Let's read it again. Titus 2, 13 and 14. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Titus 2, 13 and 14. So we're looking back to the appearing of our Lord, called Advent, who came to save for himself a people, and we're looking forward to the second Advent, the great appearing, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're going to have to keep looking forward to that. It's good. What happened to the wilderness wanderers is they looked back and they saw Egypt. And then later they wanted to appoint a leader to bring them back there. They kept thinking, well, it wasn't so bad. I wonder why we were crying out to Yahweh to get out of here. It's worse in this wilderness. I think it wasn't so bad. They had all kinds of goodies in Egypt. And that was the sin. Now between the appearing, epiphany, first advent, and the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, by analogy, we're in the wilderness. This world doesn't look so good. Okay? Okay. This world is teaching and believing and practicing everything that's antithetical to being a Christian. Do you ever feel that way? And uh, what we believe is seen as absurd, offensive, disgusting, and idiotic 
because we see the need for forgiveness of sins, redemption, sanctification, help serving our Lord, freedom to worship him, and to look forward to his return. And so this is exactly what the Bible says here, Titus, about the Christian life, waiting for the blessed hope. I won't listen to anybody who mocks me for doing that. What really is disgusting is the Christians who mock us. The hotshot dominionist, holier-than-now Christians are mocking us pathetic, ordinary Christians because we're not trying to rule over the world now. We're looking for the Savior, the kingdom that he promised, with the king actually present, appearing in the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the meantime, as we live in this wicked world, we're redeemed from lawlessness, and God is purifying us to be a people for his own possession. He's still doing that. And being in such a situation drives us to the Lord, drives us to prayer, drives us to trust in him, drives us to the word of God, and drives us to care for one another because that's what being a Christian is like. It's, I, I know people say, oh, it should be all downhill and wish to, with the wind. Christian life. I heard one guy used to come say, downhill and with the wind. That's all it ever is. Downhill and with the wind. Well, uh, more like creeping uphill with arthritis sometimes. And uh, we need to care for one another and not mock people who are suffering in our midst, but to care for everyone. And I appreciate that, by the way. Thank you. Dear saints, you've been so good to one another and to hurting people. So I'm not saying this out of frustration with the congregation because we are so blessed. We're so blessed. But these things are here for us to remember. Redeem people waiting for the blessed hope, knowing that this is not all God has done. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for being kind to us. Thank you for the opportunity to learn from those you brought out of Egypt and from the prophets who spoke about what happened to them and from our Lord Jesus who spoke about this and from your apostles who spoke about this so that we might be a grateful and a thankful people who honor you, who look after the needs of other Christians who proclaim your gospel and look for your return because we love you and we want to be with you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.